You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Corinthians 10. We'll read the verses 1 to 13. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Beloved congregation, we're going to continue this morning to explore what the Holy Scriptures have to say about the perseverance of the saints. And this morning we have come to the articles 10, 11, and 12. You'll find them on page 568 and 569 of your book of praise. We begin then with Article 10, the source of this assurance. This assurance is not produced by a certain private revelation besides or outside the word, but by faith in the promises of God, which he has most abundantly revealed in his word for our comfort. By the testimony of the Holy Spirit, witnessing with our spirit that we are children and heirs of God, And finally, by the serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. And if the elect of God did not have in this world the solid comfort of obtaining that victory and this unfailing pledge of eternal glory, they would be of all men the most miserable. Article 11, this assurance not always felt. Scripture, meanwhile, testifies that believers in this life have to struggle with various doubts of the flesh, And placed under severe temptation, do not always feel this full assurance of faith and certainty of perseverance. But God, the Father of all comfort, will not let them be tempted beyond their strength. But with the temptation will also provide the way of escape. And by the Holy Spirit will again revive in them the certainty of perseverance. Article 12, this assurance is an incentive to godliness This certainty of perseverance, however, so far from making true believers proud and complacent, 
is rather the true root of humility, childlike reverence, genuine godliness, endurance in every struggle, fervent prayers, constancy in suffering, and in the confession of the truth, and lasting joy in God. Further, the consideration of this benefit is for them an incentive to the serious and constant practice of gratitude and good works, as is evident from the testimonies of Scripture and the example of the saints. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, she was born in either 1820 or 1823, historians don't know quite which, in New York City. At the age of six weeks, she became blind. Later, at the age of 11, she entered the New York Institute for the Blind, where she lived for 23 years, first as a resident and then as a teacher. In 1950 or 1858, she married a blind musician, and by 1864, she had published more than 2,000 hymns. Now, not all of these hymns were of equal quality. Some of the tunes have been critiqued. Some of the theology has been questioned as well. But nevertheless, there is no doubt that Fanny Crosby, along with her co-worker Ira D. Sankey, had a major impact on the American revival movement in the 19th century. And interestingly enough, for our purposes in this series of sermons on the canons of Dort, one of her most famous hymns is called Blessed Assurance. Some of you may have sung it or be familiar with it. The opening verse goes like this, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, Purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. And thereafter follows the refrain, This is my story, this is my song, praising the Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Clearly what this song tells us is that for the blind composer Fanny Crosby, the biblical teaching of assurance was a source of rich and abiding comfort. She could not ignore it, and so she composed about it. She could not dispute it, so she embraced it. And indeed, she embraced it at one of those really encouraging aspects of the faith. And of course, it may be said that her language is not necessarily 21st century language. We might find it a bit too flowery. But still, there is no doubt that here is something to sing about, to rejoice in, and to be excited about. And that, of course, begs the question, what about you, beloved? We've been dealing with this part of the canons now a few times. Does this teaching of God's preservation, of God's assuring us of our salvation still move us? Do we rejoice in the fact that our salvation is not a shaky and vulnerable affair? Does it fill our hearts with joy to know 
that the same God who begins a good work in us will see it through to a fitting and most glorious conclusion? Beloved, this teaching that we have before us this morning is indeed a most blessed one. And therefore I preach to you on the theme this morning, Blessed Assurance. We're going to first of all examine what it is that produces it, secondly what attacks it, and finally what enhances it. Well, beloved, before we turn our attention to the Articles 10, 11, and 12 of the Canons, chapter 5, it's good to look back for a moment. And when we do that, what is it that we see? Well, we see a number of different things in the earlier articles. First of all, we see that those who are called by God are not perfect and that they have their sins as well as their struggles. And we also were reminded that sometimes those sins can be very serious. Very offensive. But still, we were told as well that God does not allow his elect to be lost. Instead, he will work in them in such a way that they repent and return as well as gain a measure of assurance or confidence in the faith. The last article that we dealt with last time, Article 9, told us that believers can gain certainty when it comes to their salvation. Their fate and their future is not to live in a world of doubt and uncertainty or speculation. No, depending on the measure of their faith, they will either have a greater or a lesser degree of certainty. Some may be strongly but humbly certain. Others may be less so. But one thing is sure, and it is that this assurance will be there. But now we see the canons move on. They, as it were, are anticipating the next question, and it is this, How do the believers know? How can they be so certain? What is it that produces in them this sense of confidence, certainty? Well, Article 10 first gives us the negative or a description of what does not do it. Notice it states, this assurance is not produced by a certain private revelation besides or outside the word. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that this assurance is not the product of some sort of special, direct, personal, or private revelation that either augments or bypasses the word of God. Now, you may know that this statement, to some extent, is a bit of a surprise, especially if you're aware of what is going on in Christianity today. And if you know what is going on, then you may even pick up your book of praise again and ask yourself, well, is this book really, is it really uh, 400 years old? How come that it's addressing such a modern issue? Well, what's the situation today? That's a situation in which many call themselves believers, but who also claim to be the recipients of direct revelation. 
They claim that God speaks to them directly. They say that they hear his voice. They insist, God told me. And that is something that Christians in North America, Africa, also Asia are claiming. I heard it more than once in China. God speaks to me directly. Well, what are we to make of that? Is it so that God today is busy giving us additional or extra private revelations that we should embrace? And should we accept the word of everyone who says, God told me explicitly to do this? Beloved, I think we should be very, very careful here. I'm convinced that this is something that is leading many believers astray and some of them into very strange and unbiblical directions. Some of the catechism students have heard me tell of the man who I met years ago who told me that, he told me this on the streets of Orangeville, Ontario, he told me that God had instructed him to write out checks to all of his creditors, even though there was no money in his bank account. And he insisted, when I asked him about this, that this message came straight from God. So he wrote, and he wrote, and he sent, and he mailed. And for a number of weeks, he was absolutely euphoric. But then, poor fellow, he was devastated when the checks started to come back NSF. Non-sufficient funds. And he found himself deeper in debt and deeper in despair than ever before. Now, that's only one story. But you know, in China, I heard countless stories of pastors who claimed to their congregations that they've received a direct word from God, and therefore the parishioners should do this or this or that. And I would say to you that that practice is ripe for abuse. And it's also a perfect vehicle for the devil to preempt and use for his evil purposes. In short, beloved, you and I should be leery of all those whom we meet and who claim that they have a pipeline straight to God. Of course, in saying this, I'm not saying that God doesn't illumine our minds and our hearts today or that he doesn't use friends or circumstances or situations to guide and to lead us. But direct revelation, the kind of revelation that you find in Scripture? No. Instead of dabbling in that, we would be much better off to do what the wisdom of the canons tell us. For look, they stress that our assurance comes not by direct revelation to us, but rather by by three things. What things? Well, first is this. Faith in the promises of God, which he has most abundantly revealed in his word for our comfort. 
So if we're openers, where does our assurance come from? It comes from faith in the biblical promises. It comes about when you open the Bible, when you read what it says, when you believe what it teaches, the Word, the Word. Rightly to Psalm 119, call it a lamp to our feet and a light to our daily path. Do you want proof that you're saved? Do you want to know what it means to live in covenant with God? Do you desire insight into yourself, into your life, and into your future? Do you want a sure guide to help you through this life? For all of those things and more, you turn, beloved, to the Word. Turn to its promises in Jesus Christ. Believe them. Embrace them. Listen to them. And it'll show you the way. But then you may ask, how can it possibly, how can the word possibly do all of this? What gives it this kind of ability? Well, the answer is in the second thing that Article 10 mentions, namely the testimony of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is the book of the Spirit. The Spirit creates it, empowers it, works through it. You know, from time to time, students going to local colleges and universities ask me, what do I say to those professors and fellow students who insist that the Bible is a book of fairy tales? To that, my response is very simple. Ask them if they have even read it. And chances are that they have not so challenged them. For there is a sense in which the Bible doesn't need you or I to defend it. It can very well defend itself. Indeed, how many skeptics and critics throughout the centuries have not been converted simply by reading the Word? For you see, when they discover it, they discover something that we already know. And that is that this is not a dead book. It lives, it breathes, it possesses power. In short, the Spirit fills it and uses it to convict men and women. Yes, and he also uses it to assure believers that they are true children and heirs of God. Yes, and that, beloved, brings us to a third thing that you find in Article 10. It is this, this assurance also comes, it says, by the serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. Now, what does that mean? It means that it's not enough to have the word of promise and the spirit of promise. You, you also need to do something with him and with it. Now, some people don't get this. They don't realize that the Christian faith is both a matter of the indicative and the imperative. What does that mean? Well, the indicative describes the promises and the blessings 
that God gives to his children. They're all of those treasures and gifts that you have in Christ. In Christ, I am an heir of God. In Christ, I am a son or daughter of God. That's the indicative. That's what I have. That's mine today. But there's also the imperative. And that refers to my calling to work out my salvation. You'll notice the canons use the word pursuit here, and they speak of a serious and a holy pursuit. The Apostle Paul, by the way, doesn't use the word pursuit. He uses the word race. He says the Christian life can be likened to a race. Yes, and surely you and I know that no one's ever won a race by sitting in a rocking chair and watching the world go by. Now, a race or a pursuit calls for effort, for involvement, for discipline, for commitment, for drive and purpose. And the goal, well, the goal, say the canons, are a clear conscience and a life full of good works. But if you like, the goals are a humble and forgiven life and a life that's full of the fruits of the Spirit. When you pursue these things seriously, tenaciously, if you will, when you make them your holy aim, guess what? Then doubts fly away. And certainty increases. Believers who exercise their faith every day flourish. Believers who do nothing but sit back and watch the world go by. They stagnate. Believers who believe the promises of God and rely on the Spirit as well as take up the holy pursuit, will be blessed with ever-increasing assurance. Now, is that a guarantee? Is that a recipe for absolute and complete success? I would say to you, beloved, this morning, that's a general rule, but not without exceptions. Notice Article 11, the next article, reminds us of this when it says, Scripture, meanwhile, testifies that believers in this life have to struggle with various doubts of the flesh and placed under severe temptations do not always feel this full assurance of faith and certainly of perseverance. How true that is, right? I'm sure that most of you know something about this. There are those days and there are those times in this life when we have our struggles, when we have our doubts, when we have our questions too. Will God really forgive all my sins? 
Will God really, truly, actually save me? Is the redeeming work of Jesus Christ truly for me? When I get to heaven? You know, sometimes our heads tell us one thing and our hearts tell us something else. There can be those days when what we know and what we feel are at odds. We may know that we belong to the saved saints of God, but we may not always feel like saved saints. Doubt is often present in the Christian life. Why is it present? Because our flesh is weak and the devil is still snooping and snorting around. And he loves nothing better than to get us to question our confidence, to compromise our integrity, and to contradict our confession. Now I realize, too, that there are those out there who say that doubt is sinful. I've heard it said that true Christians do not doubt. They never doubt. Well, perhaps the best response to that, excuse me, nonsense, is to be found in the words of 1 Corinthians 10.13. Those are also the words that you find paraphrased at the end of Article 11. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, aren't those great words? Aren't those, first of all, sane, sober words? For they tell us that temptation and doubt are common in this broken life. As believers, we need not be unnerved by our doubts, our weaknesses, even our temptations. And secondly, you'll notice these are very directed words, for they point us to God. The God who is always faithful in Christ. And the God who doesn't forget us when we get into trouble or succumb to temptation for a while. And finally, these are comforting words. But they tell us that the God who stands by us is the same God who will rescue us, who will pick us up, who will restore us. He will provide a way out. He will enable us, Paul says, to stand. And you know, it's as if the canons are looking over the totality of Holy Scripture when they stay by the Holy Spirit. God will again revive in them the certainty of perseverance. Maybe they're thinking of Abraham. 
It's kind of tough, you know, to be a hundred years old and still believing in the promises of God that you're going to get an offspring and an heir. Or maybe the thinking of Job. It's rather difficult to revel in the mercies of God when your body is covered with sores and you stink because of your illness. Or maybe they're thinking of Peter who denies the Christ over and over again and who must have wondered, what now? What about those other personalities sprinkled throughout the pages of the Bible? In the end, however, beloved, it doesn't matter. What matters is that this entire teaching represents a most marvelous incentive for all of us. You know, that's finally what Article 12 is about. Again, notice, first of all, it deals with the negative. In other words, it tells us what the doctrine, this teaching, does not produce in a Christian's life. It does not produce either pride or complacency. And so, beloved, if you meet someone who claims to be a Christian, but who at the same time comes across as very proud, smug, and self-satisfied, all the warning bells in your head should go off. But those are not the proofs of true spirituality. They may rather be the indicators of hypocrisy. But look, here is the positive. This is what true believers look like. One, the canons paraphrasing the scriptures say, they possess a childlike reverence or humility. You remember the words of Micah 6, verse 8, the last words about walking humbly with your God every day? True believers have a low opinion of themselves. They have a high opinion of God. And when they do have a better opinion of themselves, it's because of what they have become in Christ. And true, they manifest genuine godliness. In other words, how do they act? What do they say? How do they live? The proof is so often in the pudding, the expression goes. You may claim to be the best cook in all the world, but ultimately it's put to the test, isn't it, when people sit down and eat what you've prepared. Then the proof is there, yes or no. And you know, that's the same as the character of our faith. The proof is in the living of it. Every day. And sir, the canons say about them, they display constancy and suffering. When some people suffer, they grumble. And they fill the air with endless complaint. Their faith tends to be a fair weather faith. In times of sunshine, they bask. In times of darkness, they bellyache. 
But not so, true saints. And four, they show steadfastness in the confession of the truth. In other words, they do not waver or compromise when it comes to the truth of God. They know the truth and they hold on to the truth for dear life itself. For they know, to quote the words of the Savior, that it is the truth that sets us free. And five, they have lasting joy, the canons say in God. Reminds you of Philippians 4, verse 4. Does it not rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I will say, rejoice. In good days, true saints, do not forget to acknowledge the source of all their blessings and to give thanks. In bad days, these saints do not forget to look through and pass these adversities to the God who is preparing for them an eternal weight beyond all glory and all comparison. Beloved, some people don't like the canons. I think this is wonderful stuff. How we, how wisely they speak to the hearts and the lives of the children of God. How, how deeply they understand the struggles of us as saints. And how tenderly they minister to the spiritual needs of the children of God. But however, this is therapeutic. Spiritually therapeutic. And no wonder. Because it's all echoing the message of the Word of God. As saints, we have a Father who has made us, loves us, and keeps us. We have a Savior who dies for us, pays for us, sets us free. We have a Holy Spirit who lives in us, transforms us, and who will always keep us in anything. Or better, anyone, encourage us more. Oh, and by the way, there is a second and third stanza to Fanny Crosby's song, Blessed Assurance, and it goes like this. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above echoes of mercy. Whispers of love. Perfect submission, all is at rest. I, in my Savior, am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. You know, just because you're blind doesn't mean you cannot celebrate. And just because you're blind doesn't mean you can't see how great this God of ours is and how he assures and preserves and cares for us.
every day. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.